book of Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, we conclude the words of the prophet Zephaniah. We'll move to Habakkuk soon enough. For now, let's do a bit of a micro-review and before I read uh, and then pray uh, for the blessing of the preaching God's words. Uh, Zephaniah wrote in the days of King Josiah. Zephaniah most likely was related to King Hezekiah and was therefore a, a priest with a little bit of royal blood in him. He was one who came delivering words of judgment even in the days of Josiah because that judgment would come whether there was reformation or not. That reformation in Israel was short-lived for even as Josiah implemented some reforms, he died in battle before they were completed. It is a picture of the limitation even of human authority of how we ought to long for Christ himself to be the one who is our great king. The great day of the Lord is the great theme of this beautiful poem. Zephaniah speaks of that day as the day of Babylonian conquest and captivity. And then in chapter 3, having given a call to repentance that even despite the judgment that will come through Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, there will be those, that remnant people, who will be safe. Those who believe in the promise, who hope in the Messiah, who seek the Lord and respond to the words of the prophets. That great day is coming, however. And not just for Daniel, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the other faithful Israelites, for there were many. But then in chapter 3, we read of another day of the Lord. A great and awesome day in which God himself, through his son Jesus Christ, will ride out against the city of Jerusalem. And it is there in three verses, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, that we find a prophecy of when the nations, the nations themselves will be called in. The temple will be destroyed. Jerusalem conquered. Christ himself will be that place in which we dwell. It is a progress of the plan of redemption. And in response to God's faithfulness to bring a remnant back from every tribe, tongue, and nation to make a fitting place for us to worship him, the new heavens and the new earth, we are to be joyful in that progress, in that call. And that is what we find here, Zephaniah chapter 3. It is a day of profound, pure, and prolonged fellowship. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, I'll read to verse 20. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away your judgments, he has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, you shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you, 
I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, draw our hearts into your orbit. Help us to see your glory and grace. May we not be so either distracted or dismayed or even as the sun has gone down, fatigued by the cares, even of a day like today. There is much to think of. There is much that awaits us. But for now, Lord, help us to rest. Rest in your presence. Sit like Mary at your feet. And hear what you have to say to us this night. We pray in your name. Amen. Last week, I covered two points. The day of final judgment that we saw in verses 1 through 8. In which God will, through his power, bring about the desolation of the wicked. Also, the day of full purification. Where God will, over time, by his spirit, bring about his purposes Throughout all the earth, culminating, culminating in a people brought together who were glorified. The challenge with many prophecies like this is answering the question of when these things take place. And one of the schemes, perhaps, that may be helpful to you, and I don't mean scheme in a, in a negative way, is to see that even as I you may remember, preach through the book of Revelation as it relates to the new heavens and the new earth and the city of God. The question for us is, when does the city of God come to earth? And the answer to that question is, it has already begun. Now, there was a bit of overlap between the kingdom of the Jews and the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. The day of Pentecost was AD 40. Uh, The destruction of Jerusalem was AD 70, and there was a bit of overlap between the old era and the new era. And that New Testament church that would grow up into a full, glorious vine and continues to grow so to this day. God is establishing then that city here on earth. Even now then we see that we are living in a not yet fully realized new heavens and new earth. It is made new because Christ sits upon the throne. That throne Even this morning as I communicated that mercy seat that was not occupied by the Redeemer until the time of his ascension. Christ had not yet come. He had not yet been coronated. He had not yet ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, but now he has. And this has changed everything. And in light of Christ's coronation... I think it changes and ought to change the way we read these books of prophecy. Zephaniah, surely, as a man, did not understand fully. Even now, we do not understand fully, as we will one day see fully Christ face to face, how glorious these things are, what they really mean. But we will try. If I would have preached this portion last week, I would have had a third and final point, the day of profound pure, and prolonged fellowship. 
That may serve as a title tonight because I have two other points that I want to make tonight as it relates to these verses, verses 14 through 20. These two, a call to worship, a call to worship, and then secondly, singing the song of redemption. Singing the song of redemption. Let's look at the first point, a call to worship. Now, in order for there to be worship, there must be worshipers. In order for there to be choir practice, you need not only a director, you need a choir. You need people with voices. Now, in fact, John Piper is somewhat famous for saying that the reason why missions exists is because worshipers do not. The point that he is making is that the mission of the church is to fill, in essence, the kingdom of God with worshipers. And what do worshipers do? They sing. They devote themselves to worship. And not just Lord's Day worship, not just private worship, not just family worship. Those moments throughout each day and each week where we gather for the express purpose of doing one thing and not other things. But we worship in the way we work. That is, we devote ourselves, body and soul, to God's purposes here on earth. There are many ways in which we then follow the call to worship. One of the elements that makes the worship of the saints so sweet is the nature of rest. Look at verse 14 and 15. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. Now, the picture of rest here is the kind of picture of rest that you might find uh, perhaps in the middle of one of those epic, gory blood battle scenes in those sword and sandals type movies where there has been great conflict on the front lines and one side has beaten the other. And men are coated in, in blood and dust and dirt and it's become this sort of mess together. But the battle is over, and there is this sense of, it's done. It's done. It is finished. The worship of the saints, especially on the Lord's Day, feels a little bit like that. Maybe you feel that way, coming from your homes, coming from the world, leaving the places of your work, and coming maybe even from a day of hard work on Saturday, and you walk into church on Sunday, and your shoulders just sort of, I'm glad I'm here. I'm tired. I need to rest. The rest and relief that is found here is not just that the fight is over, but that in the presence of God, our conflict with him is over. Look at verse 15. Well, before we get there, look at the language... <laughs> Look at the language that God expresses about the chosen people. O sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, to whom is the Lord speaking through his prophet? He is speaking of the descendants that will come after the writings of Zephaniah. The descendants of the generations that in the mind and decrees of God belong to him yet have not been called and brought to that place of comfort and rest. And this, this is why we are to rejoice. This call to worship consists of this glorious truth. 
you are free from the wrath of God. And the one who is our great enemy, the devil, is no longer dwelling in the courts of heaven. Zephaniah is not talking about the return of the exiles to Jerusalem soon after Babylonian captivity. He is talking about the great event in the Gospels where Christ speaks of the strong man who has cast out our great enemy. He has cast him out. And that is why Christ says, we have the full run of the house. What is the house? The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. It belongs to us. Now, that does not mean treat it however you wish. And it has not yet been fully given to us. We have not received our full inheritance. But he has certainly cast out our enemy. For the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And you shall see disaster no more. Now, disaster here is not referring to skirmishes and conflicts that we experience as the church in this life or as saints, either individually or corporately, because it's coming. Believe me, it's coming. Some of you may have recently seen that Rob Reiner, that great bulwark of Christian orthodoxy, who has rejoiced in the enshrining of certain states now putting Roe v. Wade in their, in their state constitutions, hates the church, hates Christ, has partnered with several what you might call evangelical leaders to talk about the danger of Christian nationalism. Now, that's a debate in and of itself. The problem is this. Just by right of being a Christian and saying God's word is the authoritative rule for life, that is who you are. You're a problem. You're a danger. You're a danger to what America endeavors to be, what the West longs to be, and that is what? unmoored from the morality of God's word. Now, that expression of the rejection of the lordship of Christ will create heat and friction with those who long to enshrine the lordship of Christ over every sphere of life. There will be skirmishes then. There will be conflict but remember this, that even as the apostles and those who come preaching the apostolic word, the word of the prophets of Moses, of David, and all the like, the church is a kingdom built decidedly right next to the gates of hell, but hell cannot and will not prevail against the church. That is the disaster that will not befall the kingdom of God. The church will stand. How does that happen? Well, it is the great irony of the principle captured probably by Tertullian, who may have been the one to say this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When Christians are dying, that is not testimony of the losing of the church. In fact, the kingdom of God is like, well, even your own discipleship. A seed. And if you were to bring forth life, what must you do? You must die. The kingdom of God is built upon the lives and deaths, many who have given up their lives in pursuit of and for the sake of the gospel. In fact, our kingdom is built upon one who died and was raised. Now, the testimony of this is that as the church has grown, 
so too the extent of our sufferings against the kingdom of darkness. There are three great periods of Christian persecution in history. There is the period of persecution under the Roman emperors prior to Constantine. There is the period of persecution in the time of the Reformation. And there is a period of persecution sort of in the modern era. More Christians have suffered and died for the sake of Christ in the past 150 years than have ever died in Christendom up to this point. Before that, in second place, would be those Christians that were persecuted and suffered and died in the Reformation. And then third would be the time of the, Reform or the Roman Empire. Now, how is that possible? Because the church has grown. Despite the sufferings of the saints, the church has grown. What we need to do, brothers and sisters, is open our aperture for the way in which we envision and understand the progress of how God is fulfilling his promises. This is what is contained in this promise. You shall see disaster no more. This is not something that relates to the, the, uh, the day after the last day of human history, right? When Christ has set up his kingdom on earth and there's no more sin. No, this is now. And not yet. Even now we see that despite the sufferings of the saints and our own rebellion, God will preserve the church. That is why we are to worship. Because the king is in our midst. He will preserve us and protect us. And that leads me then to my second point. Singing the song of redemption. So there's a call to worship. Sing. Why do we sing? Because there's gladness in our hearts. I remember years ago, uh, there was a question put to one of the licentients in a presbytery. Maybe I've shared this story with you. I'm told that I share the same stories over and over again. I guess I'm following my father in those footsteps. A question was put to a licentiate. Does God command our emotions? And he stopped for a minute and thought, I don't, I don't, well, yes. As you can see, uh, the psalm sort of, the, roll, you know what a Rolodex is? Kids, you don't know what a Rolodex is. It's, you know, it's like the thing you do when you get a phone and your mom and dad have all the context. You're scrolling through all the references of the psalms in which the psalmist relates God commanding us to have joy. This is that joy. And we are to have joy in light of what we see. And so continuing in verse 16, In that day, in that day, when the Lord has taken away our judgments, has cast away your enemy, which is fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and King Jesus is in our midst, which he is now, even now, there is no disaster that can destroy us. And so what are we to do? Not fear. Now, why would we be commanded to not fear if everything is perfect? How can this be fulfilled when the new heavens and the new earth are finally realized if the exhortation in light of all we see is do not fear? God will not have to tell us to fear at the wedding supper of the Lamb. There will be no enemies. There will be no need for that exhortation. Instead, we are told here not to fear. Why? Well, it is connected to the next exhortation. Nor let your hands be weak. Again, why? How? In light of all that we see, in light of the great persecutions 
and sufferings in the dark places of this world, we look at verse 17. This is what new covenant fellowship looks like. And it is not less true despite suffering. Because the Lord our God is in our midst, or the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one will save. Now God saves in two ways. He saves in two glorious ways. The first way in which God saves is he saves us from the pit. He redeems our lives. He gives us salvation. The next way in which the Lord saves is he conquers our enemies in a way that is incredibly good and noticeable to us. He flattens them all. Yet we have to wait for that one to be finished. But even now we see it happening. The gospel of the Lord has gone out into the nations. And he has done so in a plotting, faithful way. 2,000 years, the Spirit has had his way upon the earth. And we find the gospel reaching to the utter limits, the utter darkest places of this world. He will save from a place of intimate proximity. This is what fellowship looks like. Verse 17. He is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. As a child, I know I've shared this story. In order to... Well, one of the things that we would do growing up is my mom would always sing a couple of different hymns to me. And there was something about those moments, and I'll be honest, I enjoyed it even to an older age. It wasn't just when I was a little child. She would come and she would sit and she would sing to me a name name above all names in some of these sort of not so classic but still beautiful and sweet hymns. And those hymns would be a balm to my soul. They would comfort, they would quiet, and even at 43, I look back on that and go, man, those are some sweet times. Parents, when you comfort your children, maybe something's happened to them, perhaps some physical or relational trauma, and you speak tender promises of God, you speak of your love and affection to them. It is sweet to be sure. But there is nothing like the sweet disposition of God. And when I say sweet, don't hear impotent. This is the mighty God who is in our midst. Right? God is not effeminate, but he is tender. He is not weak, but he is gentle. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Do you think of the action of God while you are doing action in worship? We're here doing what we do. Right, We sing songs, we pray to the Lord, we hear the preaching of the word. But all the while we are here meeting in covenant fellowship with him and with one another, God is doing this. 
with his angels and the heavenly hosts. He rejoices over us. We rejoice in him, and he rejoices. How can... Because God rejoices that we, the lost sheep of Israel, his children have been brought to his table. Parents, it's like when your kids are gone for a long period of time and they finally come home. It's so sweet to have them all gathered around the table like a Christmas or a Thanksgiving. That's why those times are so sweet. It's not the getting and giving of gifts. It's the getting and giving of one another. God gets He has joy when we are in his presence worshiping. He loves it. This to me is the primary motivating call to why we should be in worship. Because God is doing something in our midst when we are in his presence that is glorious. But it's not just a description of covenant Lord's Day worship. It's a description of the joy that God derives in the reclamation of the lost sheep. This sentiment is expressed in the parable that Christ gives of the prodigal son. The son doesn't care where the... The father doesn't care where the son's been. He knows where the son has been. He knows what he has eaten. He knows what he has spent his money on. In fact, Jesus is doing two things. He is revealing the extraordinary love of God and the hard-heartedness of the Jews because they had forgotten a God of grace. Will you and I be ready to welcome in the dirty Those who have given up their inheritance, who've gone far afield. This is the heart of the father. It is not a father that tolerates sin. It is a father who delights in repentance and restoration. I think it's beautiful. And it is a description of what is happening in the reclamation of the nations. Why does God save sinners? Because he loves doing it. It brings him joy. And not only that, will he bring us to him and sing over us. Look at verse 18, all the way to 20. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you. To room its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will point them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. The prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son is fulfilled in what we find in Zephaniah 3.17. Then surely the healings of Christ and the going out to the lepers. For those of you who say that I do not have the power to forgive sins, ask yourself this question. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or go, rise up, take up your bed and walk? But to show you that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, I say get up and rise and walk. And what happens? He gets up. What is Christ saying? 
That it is through the Messiah, through the Son of God, sin into the world, that God will bring sinners, the lame, the weak, the poor, the leprous, the lame. And then, as a great sign of the extent of the mercy of God, we see that Ethiopian eunuch who had mutilated his body in service of idol worship made whole, I don't mean physically whole, but baptized and washed and brought into the presence of God. Remember in the Old Testament, if any man had scarred himself and mutilated his body in idol worship, he was allowed nowhere near the temple. Nowhere near the temple could he come. But now in Christ Jesus, even those who are disfigured to the shame, or to their shame, that shame is taken away. God will bring about restoration. And look, and not only restoration of those who are broken, I will appoint them for praise and fame. God will exalt the name of those in the very same lands where they were one day put to shame in the past. God will make glorious his name through the names of his people. So at that time, verse 20, I will bring you back even at the time I gather you, for I will give you fame, there it is again, fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Now, obviously there's some debate as to when this will happen. There's eschatological disagreement. But remember, all of this is taking place in the days in which we are called, told not to fear. What does that mean? That even in the days of sin and sorrow, in the days of combat against wickedness and darkness, God will exalt the names of the saints in such a way that all of the earth will see. They will see it. And they will give praise to the king of the church, to the one who sits upon the throne. This is what Zephaniah is showing us this is why Christ came. And this is what Christ is continuing to do by the Holy Spirit. This is a description of what the Spirit will do in and through the church. It has to do with the remnant. It has to do with the great and awesome day. It has to do with the people of God. But the Holy Spirit will be successful in bringing back all of those who are lost yet chosen by God, given to the Son, by the Father. This is our promise. Let me pray.